Welcome listeners to a new episode of the NK News podcast and today I'm very pleased to have with us a special guest from Australia, Dr. Adrian Buzo, former Australian diplomat, currently lecturer in Korean at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia and author of the brand new second edition of Politics and Leadership in North Korea, the Guerrilla Dynasty. Welcome Dr. Buzo and thanks for coming. Thank you. How and when did you first come to Korea? Well, I arrived here on the 8th of January in 1972 as the newly appointed third secretary to the uh, Australian embassy. What was South Korea like at that time? Number one, well, it was classified as a hardship post by our foreign affairs department, and I was the only one who wanted to come here. So uh, that made it a bit easy. First impressions, look, uh, it was putting all its chips on economic survival, tremendous energy, uh, a sense of incipient crisis, shall we say, not actual crisis. During your first year here, uh, North Korea and South Korea had their first real talks, I guess, since the Korean War, the, the Red Cross talks here in Seoul. Was that when you were here? Uh, no, that preceded me. Oh. Uh, the The 4th of July communique was 1972. But while I was here, there were a couple of meetings. I think there, were, there was, there might have been one in Seoul and one in, in, in Pyongyang. And uh, for the first year or so, uh, there was an ongoing uh, dialogue of sorts. Okay. Now, under what circumstances did the Australian government decide to open the first ever Australian embassy in Pyongyang? Well, that goes back to the election of the Labour Party under, under Gov Whitlam in December 1972. Under the foreign policy adopted by uh, the incoming government, influenced in a very strong part by a, a sizable number of influential socialist left uh, cabinet members, the uh, Labour Party viewed the Asian region very much in, let's call it a, a post-Cold War framework. Mm -hmm. China, North Vietnam and North Korea uh, had been pretty well hardly done by and grossly misunderstood uh, over the past 20 years because of Cold War politics. Now, uh, well, I suppose you could say, so in my opinion, they got two out of three right, so that's not doing too badly. Mm -hmm. As a result of that, they, they lumped all three together. They moved immediately with incredible haste, virtually without preserving any bargaining uh, positions to normalize relations with China. Yep. And they moved very quickly with uh, North Vietnam, as it was then. Yep. And they, uh, in many ways, they wanted to lump North Korea into that. But they just kept on getting very, like, um, disturbing feedback, mm. I suppose, and enormous amounts of pressure from the United States that, uh, look, you, you can't sort of look at North Korea in the same way that you're looking at China and North Vietnam. Okay. So when did the first embassy, the Australian embassy actually open in Pyongyang then? In very late April, if my memory serves me right, about the 30th of April, uh, 1975. Were you part of those negotiations? No, I wasn't. Okay, but you were part of the opening of the first embassy. Yes, I was. Yeah. Yes. Tell us about that experience. 
basically we were put up in um, what was called the Botongang Hotel, uh, which is way out on the outskirts of town. Still open today. Is it really? Oh, good. It's been somewhat superseded. But in those days, uh, it and I think the Cordia Hotel were about the only, I won't call them international hotels, right. but uh, they had uh, they had allocated a small embassy building to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, there were just embassy buildings left, right and centre. And there was, uh, at the end, nestling under this huge electric uh, transmission line oh, pylon. Yes. And next to it, just a, an empty, muddy field was this rather small uh, building that uh, they had allocated to the uh, to Australia. Do you know if it had been used as an embassy or consular office before? No, it was new. Okay. They sort of expected us simply to move into there because that was what was planned. But our ambassador, who mm. that's who, who was not a resident ambassador, he was the ambassador to China, oh. was a bit more ambitious than that. And he said, oh, this is far too small. And so uh, sort of a tug of war uh, ensued for about four or five months ah. that uh, saw us still... Just while you were there in Pyongyang. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. And so, they, so, so they, that just meant we uh, we stayed in the hotel. Pyongyang, yeah. And, uh, worked from there? Uh, we, we worked out of our rooms, yeah. And so eventually what happened at the end of that tug of war then? I think someone else pulled out. You know, this was a time when North Korea was uh, really pulling in a lot of low-hanging fruit in yeah. the... Uh, non-aligned movement. Several interesting countries were actually establishing embassies there, the Mm. Congo, Gabon, for example, and so on, and a raft of Middle Eastern countries. Somehow one of them must have pulled out because Mm. a larger uh, and more suitable building, (laughs) not under the pylons, came due. And for whatever reason, they decided, yeah, okay, the Australians can move in there. What other countries, other than members of the socialist bloc and the non-aligned movement, uh, had embassies there at the time in 75? Uh, the, the North Koreans had run up a series of very heavy foreign trade debts, yes. with, uh, especially with the Nordic countries. Right. So the Finns had a, uh, a trade commission there or a trade office. Uh, the Swedes had an embassy, and their sole, sole purpose, as far as I could see, was just to try to jemmy some money out of the North Koreans. <laughs> Were they successful? No. No. So the the ambassador was non-resident. Mm-hmm. There was a charge d'affaires. Yep. There was you as second secretary. Yep. Who else was there? Oh, just an administrative second secretary as well. And were you the only one who spoke Korean? Well, we had a um, an interpreter mm. who was appointed to us. I'd come from about 15 months of language training in Seoul. I'd also majored in Japanese at, at Sydney University. Oh, yeah. So you know, I had reasonable language skills. Yeah. And they were <laughs> more reasonable than his because uh, he was uh, clearly... Not, not up to the job. A lovely, lovely guy, and we got uh, to know each other as well as one can in yes. uh, that sort of circumstance. To what extent do you think he was working for the embassy, and to what extent was he working for uh, the Korean authorities? I think it's a bit of both. Okay. Uh, in ways that make it, it's something, look, to be quite honest, I don't know whether he's still alive or not. Mm. All I can say is that he served his government well and he served us well and he was just a very, very nice guy. Win-win for everybody. (laughs) So what was everyday everyday life in Pyongyang like as a Western diplomat? As a Western diplomat, well, the first thing we used to say, because this was still the Mao era in Beijing, Mm -hmm. and every month we used to take the diplomatic, or every week we used to take the diplomatic, 
automatic mail out. Get on the train, sometimes the plane. Ah, uh, to, from Pyongyang to Beijing. From Pyong- Pyongyang to Beijing. Yeah. And we quickly developed this sort of saying that uh, Beijing was Paris compared with, uh, <laughs> with Pyongyang. But that would have been a long train journey in those days. Yes, it? it was 22 hours. Is that all? From yeah. Pyongyang to Beijing? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, that aside, what was Pyongyang like that yeah. bare, uh, bleak, like mm. a tomb, like a mausoleum, basically? Huge, empty streets. Yeah. Uh, basically, I regarded it as, as part of my uh, purpose in being there to get some, uh, to determine what I could and couldn't do. Yeah. Um, because what I noticed very quick was an awful lot of what you could call self-censorship. They just simply uh, didn't want to be in North Korea, didn't mm-hmm. like the North Koreans and didn't venture out at all. But uh, I just wanted to see what the limits were. So I, uh, I tried to go shopping and very quickly found that uh, I was refused service uh, in all but the diplomatic shops. Okay, so diplomats were expected to, to do all their grocery and other personal shopping at the diplomatic shops. Yes, okay. yes. So you were not expected to be buying anything from the North Korean economy? No, not at all, not at all. Because oh, wow. like you'd go to the main department store, yes. uh, you, you needed coupons. But weren't there at that time when you were there in the, in the mid-70s, weren't there the special banknotes for people from non-socialist countries? With mm, I never saw them. Not at that time, no, okay, that no, might have been later yeah. then. And, and you had this North Korean um, who worked at the embassy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you couldn't give him some money and say, could you go down the shops and, and get us some uh, whatever? Uh, well, I guess we could have. It's uh, just never occurred to me because uh, basically when you're living in a hotel, well, yeah. there, there are your meals. Right. Uh, we, we all got a, a big sort of food order yeah. of various types of things in from, from Hong Brought Kong. From, okay. Yeah. So did you ever not live in the hotel during your time there? Uh, no, oh, always okay. in the hotel. And how long were you there for? A total of six months. Six yeah. months. Mm. And that's when the embassy closed? Yeah. Okay, now could you tell us the circumstances under which the embassy uh, was closed? I think I've already said enough to give you the impression that our government's policy uh, was not very well thought out, mm-hmm. and it confused uh, it confused one country with another. Or this is the the post Cold War mentality you're talking about. Yes, okay. yes, and uh, somehow it thought that uh, just as China had really come out. Remember, yep. uh, this is uh, now we're into seventy five, yep. and you know what is it, three or four years since uh, the initial Kissinger trip. Uh, those events. This confusion confused the North Koreans because Australia at the same time was was making clear overtures to the non-aligned movement, for yeah. example. It had observer status at the 1975 non-aligned movement summit. And, and North Korea was particularly active in the non-aligned movement, wasn't it? Oh, like yeah. Kim Il-sung yeah. would speak at some of the summits like in Indonesia. Um, Oh well, that was that was a, that was quite a while ago. The, ah. Ban, the Bandung conference that okay. was uh, that, that was very much back in the past. Now, oh, Ki- Kim never went to any uh, non-aligned mm. deals. So there we had uh, Australia with this rather confused and confusing uh, uh, policy. But the, after about six months, it came to a head over the United Nations. Now, mm-hmm. uh, people may not be aware, but uh, every September, every autumn, the United Nations General Assembly meets, and uh, it, it comprises various committees. And one of those committees is a political committee, mm-hmm. uh, which consists of all members. So committees are a misnomer, but mm. it uh, it passes or it considers, it deliberates, and it, well, it votes on a whole lot of uh, 
resolutions, yes. some of which are passed on to the main General Assembly and some of which just simply die on the vine. Okay. Uh, and so the Korea question at yep. Anga was, was a very big thing in the early 70s. The, the North Koreans were really pushing to have a pro-North resolution Well, d- demanded the United States withdraw their troops uh, ah. from the South. Uh, and something we're still talking about now. Indeed. Well, or I should say something North Korea is still demanding now. Indeed. Right. And um, there was there was a pro South uh, one as well. This just simply sort of competing resolutions on the floor of the yeah, and mutually the mutually contradictory right. uh, as well. Um, Which Korea was a member of of the United Nations? None of them. Aha, uh-huh, okay, yeah. but they both wanted to be the only Korea. Uh, not really. That wasn't spelt out so much. Actually, the the South Koreans in the very early seventies uh, had had moved to uh, follow the West German position mm. on East Germany. They wouldn't really get too upset if people wanted to recognize East Germany okay. uh, as long as you know it was done with sort of uh, in a friendly manner yes. in a manner friendly to the interests of West Germany right. and the South Koreans I don't really think the South Korean government and its diplomatic corps gets half the credit they need for the, the uh, or they should receive for their diplomacy uh, du- during this period uh, very patient very subtle really maximizing they're, they're rather still very slender influence mm. in regional affairs. Okay, but we had these two competing resolutions. North Korea mm. wanted support from Australia. Yeah. It didn't get it. Yeah, that's right. It didn't act, well, it said, well, we'd like you to support us, but uh, what we do ask is that you don't oppose us. Okay. Uh, again, the government couldn't quite make up its mind, and it was uh, it was confused about this, that, and the other. So confused that uh, uh, finally, uh, it it really the terms of the pro North Korean resolution were just too much for the Australian government to support. I mm-hmm. mean, I mean, they just weren't in the national interest, and they really were quite upsetting to the uh, to the Americans. Mm. The Americans, as everybody knows, they are the bedrock of our defence posture. Right. Essentially, <laughs> our uh, our ambassador to the, uh, to the UN uh, gave a speech that said we can't support. Uh-huh. Uh, this uh, we will vote for the the South Korean resolution. Ooh. the The interesting thing is that this didn't immediately trigger a withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Uh, already, as I later found out, sometime about three or four weeks prior to the, uh, this particular UNGA meeting, uh, the South Korean Chargé d'Affaires in Canberra had told uh, a neighbour and friend of his that, uh, oh, he's going to miss Canberra. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, so you mean the North, North Korean charge d'affaires, surely? Yes. Right, OK. Oh, sorry, to say South, sorry. So the so North Koreans knew they were leaving. The North Koreans knew they were leaving once the actual terms of, or once the outlines of Australia's fundamental policy on the Korean question at the mm-hmm. UN became clear. And it took several months for this to become clear, but yep. by oh, mid-September, I'd say roughly uh, 75, it was clear. Right. And uh, the North Koreans did what the North Koreans do. Which is, what, they, they told the Australians to, to shut up within 24 hours or something? Was it? Oh, 48, actually, yeah. Okay, mm. 48 hours. So yes. pack your bags, yep. your embassy's closed, yep. you're going back to Australia. Yes. And we're doing the same. Uh, well, they'd already pulled out. Ah, okay. And the first we knew the North Koreans were pulling out was when a foreign affairs official mm-hmm. was at Canberra Airport on a completely different purpose. Yes. And, and he looked 
down, I sort of looked down the hall, yeah. and there was this trail of luggage at the check-in counter right. uh, with the with the North Koreans getting a flight to Sydney yeah. and, and, and paying excess baggage with a big wad of cash. Uh, the proverbials hit the fan at that stage. And then we were informed, I suppose, about 20, 24 hours later. This was this occurred about six, I think, six or seven days before uh, uh, we were called in and ah. said, essentially, look, we, we want you to leave. You, uh, you've carried out a consistent campaign of spying and act, spying. acts against the, uh, wow. the best interests of the, uh, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Okay, so you were called into the foreign ministry. They gave you this, this message and they mm-hmm. said, on your way. Yep. Right. And by that stage, the North Korean diplomats from Canberra had already returned to Pyongyang, it sounds like. Yeah, they were out. Okay. They were out. There was also a funny story I remember hearing about uh, the North Korean embassy vehicle in Canberra uh, crashing and uh, asking for help at the South Korean embassy without knowing it was the South Korean embassy. It went like this. Something like 48 hours before they were before they bugged out, the Chagé d'Affaires was going to a reception. Now, this reception happened to be at the top of a nice long stretch of a uh, road called Mugaway in mm-hmm. Canberra. So the bloke dropped his amber, well, his, his, um, his Chagé, and turned around, and, went, and this was the last time he would have to drive a Merc down a nice clear road, and so he gunned it. But unfortunately, at the bottom of the hill, there was a bit of a bend, and he rolled the car. Oh, dear. Uh, yeah, and it just so happened that uh, the nearest uh, residence to where he rolled the car was mm-hmm the residence of the uh, South Korean ambassador. Uh, and so the ambassador had a big crash and came running out. Ah. The ambassador told me that uh, he didn't have to pull him out of the car. The guy right. wasn't wasn't injured. Right. The guy just sort of got out and was dusting himself o- yeah. off. And the ambassador said, are you all right? And the uh, the, the secretary <laughs> took one look and, he, of course, he recognized yeah, he the, the ambassador. And he just simply took off across the parkland. Yeah. Leaving the car there. <laughs> yeah. Wow. The next day, yeah. they went down to the Merck dealer, even though it was only 48 hours before they, they were bugging out, but they still had to get around. Right. So uh, they went down to the Merck dealer, and there was a Merck in the showroom, uh, and they said, oh, we want to buy the Merck. We want that one in the right. window. Display we'll pay model. for it. Yeah. I'm sorry, but that's already been promised. Oh, dear. It had been promised to the South Korea. Oh, <laughs> uh, there dear. we go. So there we go. Well, let's move on to your research now. Uh, in 1999, or, or perhaps in early 2000, I bought the very first edition of your book, which at that time was under the title The Guerrilla Dynasty. Mm. Tell us uh, how that book came about. Well, I had actually struggled to avoid uh, really becoming uh, involved in North Korean uh, studies, if you like. Uh, I had other preferences. But uh, around about the mid-1990s, uh, mid uh, it sounds a bit glib, I know, but uh, I, I had to do a PhD uh-huh. because of my overall position mm-hmm. in academia. Yep. Uh, I'd reached a point where I just could not progress any further without a, without, without a PhD. Sure. I tried to get good supervisors in my preferred areas, one of which was early Korean writing systems, mm-hmm. uh, but I just couldn't find anyone. But I could find a good um, supervisor for uh, one on North Korean politics. Okay. I had already been writing for some years, especially for the Far Eastern Economic Review on North Korean uh, affairs. So it, it, it did seem to me that uh, that I was fairly well read into the literature right. uh, and still had current information 
So this seemed to me to be the best option. Now, in a nutshell, what was that book about? Well, in a nutshell, it tried to carry the narrative of Scalapino and Lee past 1972. Now, at the end of last year, late 2017, you released a second edition under a new title. What's the new title of the book? Oh, they just flipped it around. It's still the Guerrilla Dynasty, but it's uh, instead of, it's politics and leadership in uh, in North Korea, the Guerrilla Dynasty. So I, I guess people will still refer to it as the Guerrilla Dynasty. Okay, all right. Then is it much uh, revised and updated? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We know a hell of a lot more now, obviously, Mm -hmm. the full ramifications of the opening of the Soviet archives and and a whole lot of other information uh, has come to light. Tell us some of the new things that you you didn't know when you wrote your first book, um, or the first edition, I should say, or impressions that you had in the first edition that needed to be corrected or removed. No, there wasn't wasn't a great deal, because in many ways you got to flip around, flip it around and ask, well, look... uh, has much changed in North Korea? Mm-hmm. That's obviously uh, a question on which there are quite a few different points of view. We are still looking at the uh, the same complexion of government now under the uh, grandson of, of Kim Il-sung. Yes. The structure, the policies, the fundamental strategic posture, the internal means of uh, control and coercion uh, are still identical. So really, uh, very little has changed in, in, in North Korea. I think most people would uh, w- w- would agree uh, w- if we apply that to the fundamentals. What are those fundamentals? How does it work? Yeah, for the, I mean, governments are complex, you know, you you have a a whole number of overlays of personality, uh, interest, uh, or special interest, uh, etc. But let's leave that aside, because those specific factors in North Korea are not, in my mind, very uh, significant. You have people who talk about bureaucratic competition. Yes, institutional bickering, or that sort of thing. Yeah, that sort of stuff. Well, they're just turf wars that you'll find inside Hyundai or, you know, you'll find everywhere. Every organization. And as far as I'm concerned, they're not really all that significant. Maybe for a fine point uh, here or there, maybe a nuance here here or there. But, mm-hmm. but fundamentally, no. I do tend to go along with the hub-and-spoke model, if you want to simplify it even further. And it is a simplification. Uh, has the leader sitting there with five different colored phones on his desk. He sits, uh, he sits at the center of a web. Uh, from that hub, uh, he, he has around him a secretariat of, of people who are thoroughly loyal, whose loyalty has been vetted by a long career of service, by ties of blood, family, self-interest, uh, you name it. It's proved to be extremely durable. Beyond that, then, you have uh, the different overlapping channels of information uh, which enable him to talk to the uh, military separately, to the parties separately, um, to, uh, to, to to various other uh, areas of, of of government, and uh, <clears throat> of course everybody is aware that uh, what th- that horizontal communication is an absolute Mm -hmm. no-no amongst the many forms of discipline that North Korea within its government structure this uh, prohibition on horizontal communication uh, You mean communication across different uh, institutions and and organizations? That's right and especially interest groups like the party 
sort of someone can't well, I mean, I, we don't know this for sure, but yeah. uh, people at different levels of the party do, do not in any routine fashion uh, have anything to do with with counterparts in military mm-hmm. or military intelligence or or, any, or or the bureaucracy and so on and so forth. So all information flows up and down? In one, well, it flows up. Right, okay. Uh, information flows up and instructions flow down? Instructions flow down based on an extremely attenuated stream because uh, what you also had with Kim Il-sung yeah. was uh, a personality, an extraordinarily um, bullying-type temperament who uh, simply wanted to hear what he wanted to hear. Anyone who, who essentially pushed unfavorable information up the line uh, was really uh, asking uh, for trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, this habit of self-censorship was dinned into the, the entire uh, bureaucracy over a period of decades, yeah. and it still existed in the 1990s. And one, and one of the tragedies of the famine was simply that uh, there, there was just no means of actually getting accurate information or no one could take the responsibility for uh, getting accurate information to to the leadership in time. And in turn, of course, you had the other problem, which was uh, the leadership itself was not concerned with alleviating famine as a policy end in itself. Yeah. You mentioned before that you don't see uh, organizational turf wars in North Korea as being of, of any great significance. So you would uh, reject then the idea that North Korea is run by competing factions. There have been authors in the last decade or so who have suggested that there's there's hawks and there's doves and there's different factions and that sometimes the party's in ascendancy, sometimes the military's in ascendancy, and you would say, no, it's, it's down to the leader? Oh, absolutely. All these things are matters of evidence. Unfortunately, a lot of the time, posits, uh, I mean, the hawk and dove, well, posits and narratives, especially the narrative that uh, in countries like that you have hawks and doves or everywhere you have hawks and doves, that becomes a very... Uh, predominant or that that just becomes an easy and to my mind intellectually uh, lazy narrative mm-hmm. you have to have some evidence i mean really that's all it gets down to and i just i just can't see it well i guess people uh, would point to north korea sometimes reaching out with overtures and sometimes doing something provocative therefore it may be evidence of uh, hawkish and dovish factions at work well, yes, but then, of course, you'd have to come along and say what's tactical and what's strategic. I mean, all the stuff that's gone on in Pyeongchang is, is highly tactical. The the severe consistency of this policy going back over, over, over decades, I think, is something that really does just uh, leap out at you. They're prisoners of history by now. Uh, the people who run the country are the dregs of what was a great uh, socialist vision for the future of North Korea in 1945. Uh, unfortunately, the stewardship of that vision fell into the hands, first of all, of the uh, Stalinist mm-hmm. occupation, uh, and then Kim Il-sung, who uh, saw in this sort of the, the Stalinist system uh, just exactly what he needed in order to meet multiple uh, objectives, uh, beginning with his own survival. It played to his own strengths. It appeared in its uh, marshalling of all the um, uh, power of, uh, of North Korea to, to be a viable way through to uh, completing the task of uh, reunification. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the first Korean War, well, that was his effort 
yes. uh, to reunify the country. To reunify the country, mm-hmm. and the the failure the uh, the failure of the Korean War to achieve that objective. Uh, I think uh, to most, uh, well, certainly to the Chinese and 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 the Soviets, that ended the issue. They they accepted quite overtly. They accepted that uh, uh, Korea would would just have to remain uh, divided. Mm-hmm. But that was not something that Kim Il Sung could ever accept. And of course, you have to factor in personality things. You know, having having once nearly nearly so nearly come yeah. come to victory. Uh, he rededicated the country to another go, basically. So today under Kim Jong-un, do you think that the the strategy is still the same, i.e. unification of the Korean Peninsula, or is it uh, system survival? System survival and take advantage of what you can. Uh, And it's not too different. Whether you're seeking your own survival or whether you're seeking uh, reunification, uh, you're still going to be wedded to, uh, to, to several sort of overarching positions. One is that you want to weaken wherever possible the U.S. footprint in Northeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And every time they uh, fly a rocket over Japan, they believe, and well, it's not an unreasonable belief, that uh, this is weakening the Japanese faith in the the United States' uh, ability to protect them. The, the North Koreans believe fundamentally that time is on their side and history is on their side, and basically they need to stay the course, and that eventually they will prevail because sooner or later the Americans have to go home because that was the, okay. the Vietnamese position too. <laughs> so you, you believe that the North Koreans believe that ultimately the Americans will leave? Not just the North Koreans, I think almost everybody uh, uh, sees that uh, in many ways, especially the uh, the United States presence in South Korea, mm-hmm. it was founded on uh, an anomaly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, they never intended to get into uh, the Korean Peninsula. Once there, once again, the Americans are to some extent uh, prisoners of history as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can't they they can't get out. They'd like to go home as well. I'm sure. That's the first uh, sort of uh, key thing they want. They want to weaken the United States. Uh, strategic presence in in Northeast Asia, and also uh, of distaste, dislike, disdain for the South. And they they seek to undermine and humiliate the South every chance they get. So you're not going to see too much of a difference, whether it's they're seeking just survival on their own terms. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we all know that when you seek survival on your own terms and when you start to develop weaponry to achieve that or to pursue that objective, we all know it's open-ended because the definition of, uh, of, of security itself is almost uh, an open-ended uh, definition. Mm. So wh- wh- where are the North Koreans going to stop? That's, that's fairly clear. What the, uh, that's the fundamental question that the Americans and the South Koreans and the Japanese are asking themselves. And there's no, uh, th- th- there's no sign of any finite position where the North Koreans are saying, okay, we've achieved what we want to achieve, now we'll talk, etc. Going back to uh, the Kim dynasty or dynasty, well before Kim Il-sung died in 1994, preparations were made for Kim Jong-il to take over. He was already very much in control of many of the reins of power before his father died. Mm. That wasn't the case with Kim Jong-un. Is the, the current system any weaker under Kim Jong-un without that period of takeover, uh, of handover, or is he doing very well? I can't see that it made much difference, to be quite honest. Uh, To me, it's 
got to be some kind of factor, but it hasn't been a factor. I mean, he's now been in power now for seven years. Domestically, uh, again, despite these uh, ridiculous international media images of Caligula on the Taedong, mm. uh, this this really is very much a, a post-terror uh, regime, if you like. Uh, under Kim Il-sung, uh, the terror was palpable, and mm. I can certainly tell you that it was when I was there in 1975. Terror that he might do away with people? The normal, the fear that people felt on a day-by-day basis, their unwillingness to have any contact. You know, I'd stand at a bus stop and just ask, uh, excuse me, is the next bus going downtown just as a, just as a gambit? I, I would get this startled look and a very hurried, nah, and then a quick, very quick two-meter jump uh, away from me. Uh, just, yeah, and so it went. And I could give you many examples uh, of, of that kind of thing. Kim Il-sung was, uh, to call him a tyrant, you'd have to call him a tyrant's tyrant. It was really a, a very difficult, a very tough uh, dictatorship. Okay, so you, so you would call Kim Jong-un a post-terror. Yes. Now, now, then you move forward to Kim Jong-il, yeah. who I would call the great consolidator in many ways. In the broader scheme, in the broader range of things when history books are written decades from now, I think people will have a much enhanced opinion of Kim Jong-il. Mm. He was an extremely clever operator. Uh, he was a dictator's dictator in yeah, many yeah. ways. Kim Il-sung did have very good uh, succession plans, but they are absolutely the exception rather than the rule. Great dictators, of course, uh, either don't have succession plans or if they do, they're pretty wacky ones. Mm -hmm. So Kim Jong-il, well, I mean, he was 69, I think, when he died. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Uh, He should have been making plans uh, before then, but uh, for whatever reason, um, he didn't. And so, yeah... Uh, he jumped over his two sons, and uh, it's very clear why he jumped. Uh, they were just not serious-minded people mm. at all. And he, he jumped over to his third son, and as far as I can see, if you wanted somebody to run the system or to preside over the system, uh, he chose very well. Because uh, now seven years on, uh, as I said, uh, the one sort of <laughs> egregious Casualty was Jiang Song Tech. Quite a few people around him, also uh, people affiliated with Jiang, also bit the dust. No, and but also the brother that was one of the, the first brother to be skipped over, who was killed at the Kuala Lumpur airport last year. Uh, the extent to which that really is intrinsic to a power struggle mm-hmm. in, uh, in in Pyongyang is another matter. The the, the motivations uh, and so it's a murky thing. Oh, it, it may not have been a power struggle, but I'm I'm just thinking of it as uh, perhaps a form of uh, a terror of his own. That Kim Jong-un is not averse to going back to his grandfather's methods of uh, putting the fear of Kim back into the populace. Uh, well, you and I know we've, we have discussed this in other forums, yes. but uh, uh, I would say there's no pattern there. In fact, in many ways, though, especially uh, what I found is the more you analyse the military uh, changes in the, at the very top of the military uh, between 2012 and, let's say, up to the, uh, the Party Congress to 16, yeah. there, there were quite cogent reasons why people were replaced and very, very few of them were purged, remarkably few of them. So if you were to write a sort of an interim report card for Kim Jong-un's leadership at this stage, what grade would you give him and what comments would you make? 
I, I don't know nearly enough. I think it would be very uh, presumptuous. All I can say is that from the outside, there seems to be overall a very steady system in operation. I can't even say there's a steady hand on the tiller because I don't know to what extent his hand's on the tiller. Kim Jong-il gathered around him, obviously, a, a, a strong secretariat. And that's, that, that secretariat, by and large, with the exception, obviously, of Jung Sung-tek, uh, as far as we know, has kind of moved on over into uh, uh, the Kim Jong-un era. Uh, and I think you can really get hung up badly by, uh, by playing the man and not the system. Overall, you do need to see the system and, and the very fractional ways in which the personality of the person in charge of the system influences events. But how do we square that with what we were talking about earlier, that it's uh, the man at the top with the five phones, hmm. the hub and spoke? If the personality of Kim Jong-un is not that important or if we're not even sure if his hand is on the tiller, then how... How can we say he's the man at the center of the of the spokes? Yeah, well, it's it's an interesting thing because essentially w- what he says into the five telephones uh, has already, in many ways, been determined both consciously and unconsciously by his secretariat, mm. and let's just say by let, let's call it the objective situation in the uh, in the country and the the fundamental policies that. Uh, the um, the regime is following. Let me ask you a final question. Imagine in 10 years or so, uh, you come to update and revise your book for a third edition, Politics and Leadership in North Korea. What are some possible futures you can envisage at that time on the Korean Peninsula? Uh, I think prediction is, uh, is voluntary folly here. Uh, in the old days, you used to think, oh, you know, this burgeoning uh, wealth among the uh, the Pyongyang elite, that's going to help integrate them more into the uh, the international system uh, at some stage. To me, I think it's, it's equally possible uh, to argue the exact opposite, mm. that they have all they need. They don't need the outside world. Their world, their world of privilege and luxury, is one at the price of uh, 70% of the population malnourished and still 100,000, 150,000 plus in the gulags. They just have no incentive to change. The Chinese don't have a huge incentive to uh, move any any further than they already have. This is one of the obviously you know big sort of misapprehensions mm-hmm. uh, that you can talk about uh, a Chinese policy towards uh, North Korea. North Korea essentially makes clear the, uh, the all the fault lines that you find within the the Chinese government in terms of military bureaucracy. And, and so on. They all have different interests. The trade-off is that uh, we're going to do so much and no more. Uh, if I had to predict 10 years from now, if I said more of the same, I could easily be proven wrong. Uh, but you I, wouldn't be surprised, right? I, I mean, would absolutely not be surprised whatsoever. If the regime was doing basically the same as today, exactly, 10 years from now. Yeah. Exactly. And, and if, if not, I mean, what would be the sort of wildest scenario you could imagine? The wildest is that somebody loses their nerve. Mm. 
somebody important inside North Korea or inside North, North, North Korea? Korea. Now, basically, we've been uh, we've been able to hold the peace. We, I mean, uh, we we of the international order, <laughs> right. uh, have been able to hold the peace uh, in Korea since fifty uh, three. Uh, we've been extremely good at doing this, and that's not just simply due to the the Americans or well to the outside force. The the American military, I think, by the way, has behaved on the whole uh, extremely extremely wisely in, in, in this this active theater of war, let's, let's remember. The North Koreans uh, have also their, their kind, especially under Kim Jong-il, a big difference between Kim, Kim Il-sung, who, who was a provocateur, uh, Kim, uh, Kim Jong-il, who had a much more measured tactical view of uh, using force, used it very quite scientifically in mm. many ways. I think the uh, I think Trump is going to be held in place by the, by the U.S. military. I don't uh, they don't, don't think they'll allow him to do anything crazy. Uh, the, the South Koreans are ready to sort of uh, drift again in, into a kind of a sunshine policy uh, mark two. Uh, that doesn't really do any harm, but it doesn't do much good. People, I think, neglect all the positives that are going for North Korea. The the sum of those those positives: uh, Chinese ambivalence, uh, well, South Korean. Well, it's a form of ambivalence, I suppose. Uh, the fact that whether the Americans like it or not, their strategic position in North in North Asia is weakening uh, because of the resurgence of China, uh, etc. So yeah, it's more of the same. But uh, so there's no incentive within uh, North Korea, barring something completely unexpected, uh, you know, a shootout in the palace, mm. or uh, or perhaps just a, a developing feeling amongst important people. Hey, we should and we can find a place for ourselves in the international order. It can work. And we do need to remember that uh, the North Koreans are heirs to a, a centuries-old tradition of high culture. One of these days, uh, that will prove to be one of the most significant influences on their future. Well, uh, let's end on that hopeful note then. Thank you very much, Dr. Adrian Buzo. My pleasure. <laughs>